Hello and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Good morning, friends and lovers of the law, and welcome to See You in Court. I am Robin Fraser-Clark, and with us here today is our co-host, Lester Tate. Lester? How you doing, doing? Robin? I'm doing great. I love that we always begin this with good morning, even though, and and it sort of... (laughs) Uh, you know, we, we are not going to acknowledge that some of our listeners may listen to it as a bedtime story at night <laughs> and it puts, puts folks to sleep. But I, I, I like that intro. I like our optimism on it. Mm-hmm. Good point, because we're taping right now a little bit after one o'clock on Friday afternoon. Uh, so I just automatically say good morning. I, I, I like it. I like it. I don't think we ought to change a thing about it. And uh it's always great to tape on a Friday, I think. I think so, too, because as soon as we finish taping, we may have a post-taping celebratory beverage or two. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in <laughs> favor of that. And uh, as I mentioned earlier before we went on on the air here, you know, tonight the Falcons play in uh, their first preseason game and the Braves are on. So that's going to be a start for a good weekend for me. Sounds great. Well, we're really excited today to be talking uh, about Georgia trial courts uh, and to help us understand it, we're thrilled to have the Honorable Mike Jacobs, judge of the DeKalb County State Court with us today. Let me uh, introduce our listeners to Judge Mike Jacobs. Judge Mike Jacobs has served on the State Court of DeKalb County since June of 2015. Mike is the first openly LGBTQ plus countywide elected official in DeKalb County history and the county's first openly LGBTQ plus trial judge. Mike serves on the board of directors of Leadership DeKalb, chairs Government Day for the program, and is a member of the class of 2016. As he says, the best class ever. Well, every class says that. (laughs) (laughs) He also serves on the board of directors of the Stonewall Bar Association of Georgia and as secretary and a board member of the International Association of LGBTQ Plus Judges. Prior to his judicial service, Mike served 10 and a half years in the Georgia House of Representatives, representing the DeKalb communities of Brookhaven, Chambly, and Toco Hills. He was chairman of the Metropolitan Atlanta Rapid Transit Oversight Committee, also known as MARTOC, M-A-R-T-O-C, the Joint House and Senate Committee that oversees MARTA's management, budget, and fiscal affairs. He also served as chairman of one of the two subcommittees of the House Judiciary Committee. In 2010, Mike received the Alan Thornell Political Advancement Award from Georgia Equality for authoring and passing a stronger anti-bullying law for public schools. In 2012, Mike served on the Special Joint Committee on Criminal Justice Reform, which vetted major reforms that place greater emphasis on rehabilitating nonviolent offenders to lead productive lives. In 2014, 
Interim CEO Lee May appointed Mike to the DeKalb Operations Task Force, the OTF. The OTF recommended county government reforms that the General Assembly enacted to help DeKalb County function better, including DeKalb's SPLOST, that's S-P-L-O-S-T, which Mike authored and passed in 2015. In 2019, Mike was recognized by the Stonewall Bar Association of Georgia at its annual awards gala with the award for outstanding service to the Stonewall community. Before joining the bench, Mike was a solo practitioner for four years, focusing his practice on consumer bankruptcy and debtor-creditor litigation. Prior to starting his own law practice, Mike was an associate at Alston and Bird, Krevlin and Horst, and Hall Booth Smith and Slover. Slover, I think it's pronounced. Mike received his law degree, magna cum laude, from the University of Georgia School of Law in 2003. While at UGA Law, he served as executive articles editor of the Georgia Law Review. In 1997, Mike received his bachelor's degree from Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Mike is the proud parent of three children, Jonah, Eli, and Samantha. Judge Jacobs, welcome to the show. Such an impressive resume, too. I'm reminded of the the late George T. Smith, uh, who, you know, served in, renowned for having served in all three branches of government. He was lieutenant governor. He was on the Supreme Court uh, and and was in the legislature. And you've almost got the trifecta there, uh, (laughs) Mike. Not too late. Well, good morning, Robin, and good morning, Lester. <laughs> good, good morning. <laughs> and um, and and I think I'm going to keep it at two. Okay. <laughs> well, as a DeKalb County citizen, I'm glad to hear that because we love right where you are on the DeKalb County State Court bench. Um, but let's talk a little bit about your service to the state of Georgia. First, your public service as a uh, representative uh, for DeKalb County in the state house which I think might be the first time I met you when you were serving as a representative and on the Judiciary Committee, um, which is the committee, well, you can tell us, but really the committee that most lawyers have any sort of interaction with. Um, tell us a little bit about your career as a representative. Why did you want to run for office? And um, how do you feel about that? How was your time there at the Capitol? Well, I mean, like anyone who gets into public service, uh, you, you only do this for others. Um, and it, it, you know, I, I, I ran to make a difference. I mean, for lack of a, of a, of a better way to put it, I mean, that it sounds cliche, um, but it's true. And it, you know, if, if, if that isn't the reason that you, um, throw your hat in the ring, you know, for public service, um, then you really need to be reevaluating, you know, what you're doing and why you're doing it. Uh, and uh, and so, I, you know, I did that at a very young age. I was. Um, oh, that's one of my colleagues calling, actually, but I will get back to her right after we're done taping. Um, so I um, tell, tell your colleague you're talking to the most important people around, you know, the the two that run the podcast there, you know, so. So um, the uh, the but, you know, that that's that's why I, I now I ran for office at a very young age. Um, uh, uh, I was uh, 
I think I, that campaign started less than a year out of law school. I graduated from law school in 2003 and was elected to the General Assembly in 2004. So in, indeed, that campaign did start less than a year out of law school. That's, a, that's amazing. What firm were you working for at that time? At the time, I was at Alston & Bird, and they, they, uh, Alston & Bird was gracious enough to allow me to run um, while I was an associate there. Um, and, uh, you know, and it, 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 in, in hindsight, I, I might have started that a bit later. Um, uh, it, it, I, I didn't, you know, I had always been interested in public service, and it was an opportunity that, that seemed difficult to pass up at the time but i you know i do in hindsight wish that i had spent more time developing as a young attorney um before going into the legislature um that being said i i you know i i i got to participate in some impactful things that 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 benefited a lot of people, and 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 that's important to me. The uh, criminal justice reform, the uh, the revision of the Georgia Evidence Code. I also was on the committee that vetted, you know, sat there with Paul Millich for um, meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. Um, I was I was on that committee too, representing Georgia trial lawyers. That was an interesting way to spend Thursday afternoons, as I it, recall. <laughs> it was. Um, but, you know, I mean, that's the evidence code we're still operating under to this day. And, you know, and it's important that Georgia's evidence code um, lines up with the federal rules of evidence yeah. and 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 the way that um, the evidence code is organized in most states. I mean, we were very much an outlier at the time and we're not anymore. And that's, that's important. And, and I can say, I remember when, and that's, you know, I'm, cool. I'm, I'm glad you remember when Mike, because that was, uh, 13 years ago. Cause it was the year I was the state bar president. And, uh, I remember you got that thing sailing through the house of representatives. It passed, you know, and then we had to, you know, get, crowbars and hacksaws to pull it through the Senate there at the end. But we did by a pretty wide margin, you know, at the end. But uh, uh, I, I especially appreciate all the work that you and and Robin did on that uh, for Georgia trial lawyers, because it was it was it was about 40 years in the making. I mean, literally about 40 years in the making. Yeah, I mean, as a former House member, I suppose I would say it's the Senate that's always difficult. But if you ask a senator, they might tell you differently. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it, 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 you know, those were those were significant changes that underscore why it's important to have lawyers serve um, in the legislature. I mean, the 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 technical aspects of the rules of evidence or um, how. Uh, uh, criminal justice reforms, you know, actually operate on the ground in in court. Um, you know, those are things that that lawyers first and foremost understand and can speak to and inform their colleagues about. And you know, and you know, at the end of the day, when you are a lawmaker, that is what you are doing is is making the law. And operationally, it has to work. Um, you know, when applied by a judge. So it that that you know i one hopes that that more lawyers find their way into the legislature at 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 whatever age um 
you know, it becomes, I think, difficult. You know, I, I say I wish I had held off, but then again, um, you know, it's also true that that the more um, entrenched you become in your practice, um, the less likely you are to run for uh, for the legislature. So, I mean, maybe it was a blessing in in the sense that, you know, I was at a point in my career where I hadn't really decided what path I was ultimately going to take and had an opportunity to do this, you know, for 10 and a half years. We, we know it's been said we've got a part time legislature, I think. Uh, the pay uh, for being a state legislator is only slightly below the poverty line uh, right now. Uh, it, it's supposed to be a part-time job, but it has become uh, more and more and more a full-time job. Uh, I worked down at the legislature in 1983, and you were home by St. Patrick's Day, and now it frequently goes into uh uh, to May, April or May. And uh, I'm curious to uh, know what you think about having a part-time legislature and about the pay you get for a part-time legislature. I mean, uh, as a le- legislator, uh, you know, some folks have said we only have the the impoverished, the retired and the independently wealthy uh, representing us uh, in a part-time legislature. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I can speak from experience um, and probably just leave it at that. I mean, I, I don't, you know, what the obviously what the how the leg, how state legislators are compensated is a policy matter that is curiously enough within their realm. Um, and so it's not really something that I would comment on in my my current position. But just thinking from experience, I will say that it is. Uh, you know, having been there and done that, that it it is difficult because the the legislature is, um, you know, it, it, it sure it's full time while the legislature is in session and in theory part time um, when you're out of session. But boy, it there are times during that out of session period where it feels like it's a full time job and you know you try to especially i will tell you that it was difficult um you know it's di- it's different when you're in a firm and you have kind of that safety net of you know other attorneys and a support staff um to you know to rely upon to kind of help carry everything forward while you're um serving in the legislature but boy as a solo practitioner that was difficult and um and that was the last four years of my practice and 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 so it's you know it 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 is i do think that the circumstances of you know just speaking from experience from experience the 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 circumstances surrounding the you know the amount of time that it takes to serve as a legislator and what members of the legislature are compensated make it difficult to get a full diversity of, um, you know, outs, you know, in general um, life experience um, in the legislature, and then more specifically um, among lawyers, practice experience in in the legislature. You know, what 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 types among the lawyers? What what types of back uh, practice backgrounds do? do the lawyers who serve in the legislature come from? 
I think there may be um, in the general public maybe a, a slight misconception about how many lawyers are in the House of Repres the state House of Representatives or the state Senate. I feel like some folks think it's full of lawyers. I heard I heard somebody on the news the other night say, "Well, you know, the legislator legislature is full of lawyers." Well, that that's not true. Uh, it, it has very few lawyers. Um, I, I think when I don't know what the count is now, but it was only about twenty or or twenty five lawyers not too long ago. Um, do you think that there should be more lawyers running for office to be in the House or the Senate? Do you think that would be helpful, considering they're the folks who write the laws? Oh well, I, I definitely think it's helpful from the standpoint of. Um, I definitely think it's helpful from from the standpoint of the way that of uh, uh, you know, having people in the legislature who can speak to the way that the laws that are passed work operationally in our legal system. Um, I also just, I mean, you know, I'm I'm happy to go, you know, judges are permitted to interact with members of the legislature around matters affecting judicial administration and the law. And um, I do find it easier for me to um, explain things to a lawyer legislator than not um, when, you know, when I'm engaged in that. And, uh, you know, and, and I think that's just reality. So, yes, I, it it is helpful to have more lawyers um, in the legislature um, because that is the job, lawmaking. And, and you are also correct that, I, you know, I have the five sitting out in the waiting area of chambers. I have the framed um, each of the five photographs that I appeared in of the cover of the Georgia Bar Journal with the lawyer legislators. In fact, Robin, I believe you're in one of those photos. Uh, I think I remember that. That is a neat photograph. I, I love that. Um, and if you count the legislators in there and 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 divide that by 230, the 236 seats in, in the House and Senate, you'll find that, you know, that that percentage is not as high as people in general might think it is. Agreed. We've heard a little bit, uh, Judge Jacobs, about um, your work as a legislator. You talked a little bit about the, the, the evidence code helping get that through. Um, and by the way, I wanted to tell you that, uh, so it's, it went into effect January 1, 2013, 10 years ago, and it's, and we still call it the new evidence code. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's so funny. I hear that in, in argument in court all the time. Well, under the new evidence code, I'm like, man, it's 10 years old. <laughs> anyway, heard a little bit about your work on that. Um, your work on the Criminal Justice Reform Committee, which was v very important and I know a subject near and dear to Governor Deal's heart. Um, tell us some other things that you're particularly proud of as your work as a as a representative. Well, I mean, I, I had one of the things that you pointed out, you know, I try not to comment on. Given my my current role things that are more controversial um but you know obviously i um i i you know i'm i identify as a member of the lgbtq plus community and and was involved in uh some issues um both positive and negative 
um, that impacted the, uh, you know, uh, that impacted the community. And um, those things are obviously, you know, near and dear to me. Um, One of the the, the one that I've received, uh, you know, we passed, uh, and I, I believe the legislature has come back a couple of times and further refine the law, but the, 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 you know, we passed a a fairly substantial reform to the state's anti-bullying law that, that exists in the, um, in the, uh, uh, education code, uh, in 2010. Uh, and that was something that I worked on with Simone Bell, a former state representative, um, uh, uh, and, uh, and Georgia equality at the time. And, you know, it, 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 and it followed a, a, a rather tragic bullying incident that was well publicized at the time. Um, that was the impetus for, you know, really, really pushing forward with that legislation. And, you know, it, 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 you know, I'm, I'm tearing up as I'm talking about yeah. it. Well, I mean, and it, it was needed and it, and it helped. It's helped, obviously, that we don't have that kind of situation, or at least it's not as <clears throat> as rampant as it was before. So that's exactly what we need to have done in the legislature. So I I, I applaud you and I pl- applaud your efforts. Um, and I also applaud you for being a lawyer and saying, I'm going to help others, not only as my role as an advocate, as a lawyer, but public service in the legislature. That's a huge, I mean, that is a huge undertaking. And, um, you know, thank you for doing it all those years. Um, Let's go to 2015, though, um, when the governor selects you. How about that? To become judge of DeKalb County State Court. Tell us what that was like. What do you remember about that? Well, um, you know, first of all, it's quite a process, uh, the appointment process, uh, filling out that application and sitting in that interview in the state bar headquarters at that very, very long conference table. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I that also all occurred at a time that, you know, I, I, I think I'll just talk about it in generic terms, but there was a, a, negative um a negative piece of legislation affecting the lgbtq plus community that was pending in the legislature um in 2015 and again in 2016 governor governor deal ultimately vetoed it um but um but i was on the front lines of that in 2015 and and right before that appointment happened um you know that 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 reached a crescendo uh, right at the end of that legislative session. And there was a lot of political heat that felt very personal that was directed at me at that time. And actually, oddly enough, in that entire appointment process, that's maybe the thing that I remember the most um, that, you know, I, I had interviewed and and then made the short list and interviewed with the governor and and was a member of the general assembly at the time and working on 
something that was very big and important um, in the moment and, and, you know, stood up and, and did what needed to be done, in my opinion, as a legislator at the time. And, uh, and, you know, took a lot of heat for it. And, and some of that was very personal um, in its tone. And, uh, and here I am today, though. <laughs> and and it worked out because you got appointed by the governor to the state court bench, which um, I appear in front of quite a bit. I live in DeKalb County, although my office is in Fulton County. Um, and we have often called DeKalb County State Court Bench the most diverse bench in the state of Georgia. Um, do you agree? I do agree. We, you know, so and all, you know, we have a total of 11 judges. There are two uh, two divisions to our court. Well, I guess if we're, if we're talking about the history of our court, we might as well start with with, um, uh you know, the the fact that, you know, DeKalb County had this old timey recorders court that handled traffic citations <laughs> that that actually, um, well, there was a legal argument. All, this also occurred in 20. A lot of things happened in 2015. Okay. Um, but another thing that happened in 2015 was that there was a legal challenge to the constitution of that court. Um, that appeared to be um, that appeared to have merit. I, I, I don't know that it I, I don't remember whether or not a, a judge actually ever ruled upon it, but the legislature clearly felt the need to take action on it. I believe Sherry Boston, who was then the I think the solicitor general of DeKalb County. Yeah, she was the solicitor at the time, had approached us about the issue um, and what it would mean if if that legal challenge prevailed. And uh, so we folded, you know, the the, the traffic of, uh, traffic citations are misdemeanors in the state of Georgia. So the court where where all of those cases would go, if that if that um, and the recorder's court also handled um, ordinance violations, which which go to magistrate court. But um, but the uh, the you know the where the where all of those cases should reside in Georgia's uniform. Um, structure is the state court, but boy, that's a lot of cases, and uh, <laughs> and uh, and definitely a large number of cases to be dumping, you know, on top of the seven then existing judges of the state court who also have complex civil dockets and 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 a, a large misdemeanor court docket that doesn't involve traffic citations. So, um, so there's now eleven judges, uh, seven on Division A. Uh, who um, handle primarily uh, civil uh, that ends in monetary judgment. I guess I'm covering uh, the jurisdiction of the state. Sure, let's too. let's talk about it. Yeah, sure. Civil that you're, ends, in and you're in Division A. I'm in Division A, so I um, I'm in in Division Five of Division A, um, and five is my lucky number. So I'm I, I guess that's uh, <laughs> good. That's a happy coincidence there. But um, you know, I was born on May fifteenth. That's probably why. But um, <laughs> the uh, so I uh, so uh, this, the state court's jurisdiction, generally speaking, is uh, civil that ends in monetary judgments of any size. So non equity civil. Um, and uh, and then misdemeanor criminal, or I'm sorry, criminal cases below the grade of felony. So that's high and aggravated misdemeanors and regular misdemeanors. So, um, and by the way, too, not every can't like Bartow County 
where uh, my office is doesn't even have a state court. You know, Polk County, where I grew up, uh, doesn't have a state court. So not every county has those, but they're really the workhorse of, of, of a lot of your metro counties. Well, absolutely. I mean, because we, you know, we take on high volume classes of cases that would otherwise go to the superior courts and have, you know, this is not, I mean, there are other classes of cases that are in superior court that, you know, that are high priority. I mean, they, they, they have exclusive jurisdiction over felony cases. So, um, and, you know, you get a speedy trial demand in a lot of, uh, a lot of felony cases. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, a, a, a whole bunch of small cases, smaller in magnitude, you know, fall in line behind that. And that's just reality. Um, so, you know, what we do, what the state, the role that the state court plays in the counties where we're, where we exist, um, is, you know, to deal with a couple of higher volume dockets that would otherwise be in, um, in, uh, in superior court. And, uh, and so, you know, you largely find state courts in the metro counties, um, you know, the largest we're, we're near the largest in terms of the number of judges. I think maybe Cobb County has one more judge than us. Um, but Fulton County also has a large state court bench, 10, uh, there's a large state court bench up in Gwinnett. So, you know, I mean, we're, we're primarily in the metro counties, but not exclusively. And, uh, you know, and, and the misdemeanor docket is high volume. Um, a lot of the civil docket is high volume. But what I love about the state court is I also get to, you know, because it's civil that ends in monetary judgments of any size. Um, uh, you know, I also get good, interesting, complex medical malpractice, products, liability, premises, liability cases. I mean, the vast majority of my written work, like 99% of it is on the civil side of the docket. And as someone who was a civil practitioner, I personally, I love that. Um, but getting back to your question, Robin, none of that actually responds to the question that you asked. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> but you didn't object that I'm being non-responsive. So no, I would never object to you. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> um, the, um, the but we you know so we have 11 judges um and uh, are very representative that bench is very representative of the community we serve um we have the first asian american judge in the state al wong who's our chief judge now um wayne purdom was for many years and and um and and now uh judge wong is our chief judge he's doing a great job um as our chief actually and, and, and is actually uh, joined me in the uh, American Bar Association House of Delegates. And I was with him in Denver uh, uh, last week, as is uh, a, and also Ron Ramsey, uh, yeah. who is, is another one of your uh, state court judges. So we've got a good contingency uh, there in the ABA House delegation. Um, absolutely. And, um, yeah, Ron was just, uh, Judge Ramsey, who I served with in the legislature. He's another former legislator. He was a state senator. Um, and we work, we actually, Ron and I had a great working, sorry, Judge Ramsey and I had a great, I'm used to calling him Ron when I talk with him, but, um, 
the Judge Ramsey and I had a great working relationship. We were both DeKalb County legislators um, back when I was in the legislature. And um, I'm proud to call him a friend. I've, you know, that relationship has continued on, uh, you know, during our time uh, serving together on the bench. And it's been really a great um, relationship that has continued from one branch of government to the other. Um, and we, uh, Ana Maria Martinez, who's the first Latina trial judge in the state, um, we've also had uh, two, two of only a very small number um, of Latino trial judges who have served in the past, Tony Del Campo, who's now the president of the state bar, um, and um, uh, uh, Dax Lopez as well. Um, so uh, and and, you know, and not many courts can boast having LGBTQ people serve um, as trial judges either. And we now have two. Um, openly gay judges on the bench. So um, it's, uh, you know, we are truly a bench that that reflects the DeKalb County community um, in every sense of, um, uh, of, of, of the word diversity. I mean, we're, we're a very diverse bench. Why is that important to have a state court bench, which we have always said is if if a citizen is going to interact with the justice system, it's most likely going to be at a state court. But why is that important to have your bench reflect the diversity or the makeup of the county? Because it instills confidence in the public that they see people who are like them and who have their life experiences. Um, serving, you know, up there on the bench. I mean, that's, uh, I don't, I, I, I don't think there is a, a more, a, a better way to put it. Um, you know, the reality is, and I see it every time I bring a jury pool into the courtroom, you know, in civil cases, that's always a minimum of 36 people. In some of our more complex cases, it's a, it's a larger jury pool, but um, you definitely get the full diverse, you definitely see the full diversity of DeKalb County um, on display in those jury pools. And you, and, and in every sense of the identities of the people who fill out our jury pools, the, the residents of DeKalb County who fill out our jury pools, you can see that reflected on the bench on the DeKalb County State Court. And that's a great thing. Let me tell you, um, I was trying a case in front of you several years ago. I don't know if you remember this, uh, but talking about the diversity of the jury pool in DeKalb County, and you were bringing the jurors in and you tell the attorneys, okay, just to let you know before we begin asking the jury questions, uh, just want to let you guys know that we're going to have a translator with one of the jurors and we're going to have an Amharic translator because we have a person who only speaks that if she's from Ethiopia and just want to let you know and and you said that just like like it was just a normal everyday occurrence in DeKalb we're going to have a translator in the jury pool don't worry about it you know just just know that translator sitting next to juror number 43 or whatever uh during voir dire and I, I wanted to tell you I don't think I've ever told you this I, of course, we said no problem, and, and it worked fine. I mean, there was not even a hiccup with a translator. But 
go back 30 something years when I first started practicing law and I, I did a lot of pro bono work for the Georgia Hearing, uh, Georgia Commission on Hearing Impaired. And I represented a deaf DeKalb County citizen who wanted to participate in jury selection, wanted to do his public service, uh, but he only knew ASL, American Sign Language, and DeKalb wouldn't appoint a translator for him to participate. And I represented him and went to the presiding judge of DeKalb County Superior Court 30 years ago and pled the case and got an order making DeKalb County pay for an American Sign Language interpreter so this citizen could participate in jury selection. So when that happened with in front of you, in, when you brought in a translator for this Ethiopian woman, I immediately thought, man, have we progressed? I had to go get an order to allow a deaf person to participate in jury selection. Here, now, 30 years later, you bring in a translator and, and we never skip a beat. I, I just thought that was a really powerful moment not only for DeKalb, but honestly, Judge, for, for my law practice to see that really come full circle. Well, I mean, we, and we should be at a point in 2023 where we're not skipping a beat. I mean, yeah. the, you know, our, our, our jury pools, um, you know, should re- be enabled without question to reflect the full diversity of our community. I, I can give you an anecdote from... Um, in, you know, the, the cool thing about our bench is that we have, you know, pretty, pretty much for every identity there, there is someone with relevant experience on our bench. And, and, and so we're resources for one another, which is great. Um, let, you know, to give you an example of where that's come into play for me, um, I had a, a transgender juror in a, in a jury pool, a civil jury pool. Um, and, you know, it's very difficult to change, um, to change, um, identifying information on government documents. And of course, that's what, you know, fills out our jury list. So in this particular instance, um, I had a juror with a female name and a female gender marker on a jury list in a civil jury pool. But and I go down the rows and have the jurors introduce themselves by name um, at the beginning of jury selection. I think you experienced that. And in this particular instance, I could tell that now the juror, because the courtroom is a very intimidating place um, or can be an intimidating place. Um, uh, uh, you know, the juror just gave the female name that was on the list in front of me. But in hearing him speak, I knew that, you know, I was dealing with a, a someone who identifies otherwise. So, you know, we get further into the jury selection process. We, you know, do general questioning first. So uh, that's just people raising their numbered pla- uh, placards. Um, but once we got to specific questioning for this, you know, and I usually do specific questioning in groups of six, um, once we got to specific questioning of this juror's group of six, I called him the bench and I just looked at him and I said, what are your pronouns? And his eyes lit up and he said, he, him. <laughs> and I, and I, and I said, what's your name? And he said, Max. I said, Max, I, I'll, I don't remember the last name, so I'm going to use Smith, but um, uh, I said, Max, go back to the bench. I called, uh, I was sorry, go back to your seat. I called the lawyers up to the bench, um, and got them on the right path and everything went swimmingly after that. I said, from now on, this is Mr. Smith. 
Um, and um, you should refer to him accordingly. And and they did. And that was great. And, um, you know, uh, Max left with a big smile on his face that day, though. I don't know whether it was because he was treated with dignity and respect in the courtroom or because he was not selected for the jury. Probably a little Maybe bit a of little both. both. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit of both. I mean, he was definitely felt seen by the court. You're you're up on the bench in a in a very um, dignified black robe. You have all the power, and here a judge recognized him and and saw him. So I I think that's very important, and I do think it was probably a little bit of both that that he didn't get selected. <laughs> But I shared that story with my colleagues and also, you know, I've, I have put together a training that I do on navigating um, situations pertaining to gender identity and sexual orientation in courtroom settings that I've now done five times. Once, wow. for, the, once for the state court judges state, statewide, uh, once for the chief magistrate judges. Um, I did it again for the Gates City at an event that was sponsored by the Gates City Bar Association Judicial Section. I did it for a group of municipal court judges in Oregon via Zoom. Um, nice. and, and then I just did it at a specialized training for Georgia judges in Athens within the past month. Um, it was more of an implicit bias training, but um, you know, it 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 makes a difference. And and the like I said, the cool thing about our bench is that there are you know, there is someone who shares the life experience of, you know, the people who come in front of us um, in DeKalb County in just about every way. Um, and and that's an important diversity that, that, that that's that's important diversity to have um, on the bench in DeKalb for sure. You know, uh, sort of uh, the evil twin of diversity is divisiveness, I think, <clears throat> where you have people that uh, uh, use their, uh, you, you know, want to use their uh, their beliefs, <clears throat> their political orientations, whatever else. And I've always thought that the, that the jury system, particularly, you know, in the last 10 years or so, is uh, really a very good model. I, I hope for hope that when you put 12 people in a room, regardless of what their past experience is or what their past background is, and you give them some important issue to decide, they can speak from their viewpoints, but they can listen and hear and they can all come to a unanimous uh, decision, you know, about that. Oh, and I, I have said that exact thing to numerous people. If, if you are losing faith, in our system of government um, because of the tenor of what you hear out there in the, you know, in the public sphere and it pertains more to the two political branches of government, um, just come and watch our jury system at work because, you know, time and time again, I send a diverse group of 12 people back into that jury room and they come out it you know a hung jury is a rare occurrence that's that's just a fact a hung jury is a rare occurrence and so time and time again these diverse groups of 12 people drawn from throughout the cab county come out with a unanimous decision and sometimes they come out laughing and talking to one another and 
you know, like they've actually built some relationships back there. And it really does give you heart about, you know, how we relate to one another as people and about our system of government. I, I think it, our jury system, you know, can serve to restore some of our faith in how we interact with one another around important issues. Judge, talking about the role of law, um, you've now been on the bench for quite a while. You've seen a lot. Um, and you, you saw a lot as a legislator, too. But I'm curious, have you seen a difference in the way people behave in the rule of law, respecting the rule of law? Have you noticed any any change in who is in front of you or the types of cases? No, I, I, I can't say that I have. Um, I, I, you know. Do you think the rule of law is as strong as it as it was when you first took the bench? I'm concerned about that. Um, in terms of how, you know, and, and I do my best to, to point out, you know, one of the things that, that is part of my opening spiel in the courtroom, um, to group, to jury pools is, you know, our, you know, I usually started off by saying, I know not everyone turns cartwheels when they reserve, receive that jury summons in the mail, but let me talk with you about, you know, why your service is important. Um, and, you know, I, I talk about how we're going to, you know, say in civil cases, select 12 of you and misdemeanor criminal cases, six of you to serve on this jury. Um, and then, you know, that jury gets to talk with one another and consider each other's views and hear one another out back in the jury room. But ultimately, when you reach a verdict, you have to return a unanimous verdict. And what that means is that not only are you reaching a collective decision, but each of those people on the jury individually has to decide that that decision in the case is their individual decision as well. And think about the the significance of that um you know it is not just one person fallible i mean we're you know judges are human too let's let's just put that out there um you know we make mistakes um and you you know that is far superior to the alternative of having one person sit up here and hand it down and that's the way it's going to be and particularly when you know, the fact is that's one person who can be fallible. Um, our jury system is aimed at, um, you know, everyone hearing all the evidence and 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 there being some give you know some communication um, and discussion back in the jury room, but ultimately twelve people individually coming back and saying, yeah, this is this is the way the outcome should be, and um, that's really a an amazing thing. Um, and I, I, you know, when you see that happen time and time again, it, it, it does restore your faith in the rule of law. I, you know, the, 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 I think the problem with things in the public domain is just that, you know, we always hear about the most sensational stories these days in the in the popular media and 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 also you know it 
you know, whether depending on what channel you're you're watching, it it you know it it tends to have a perspective to it too, right? I mean, I, I you know, I think it's important for people to know that you have judges on the bench each and every day who are committed to the sanctity of the rule of law, to there being one source of law that has come from the people, um, faithfully applying that law and letting the people who participate in that process, meaning our, our you know, when, once a case gets to trial, our juries, you know, within what the law provides, you know, make decide where the truth is. And um, that's the way it should be. And it, it really is operating as design from where I sit. But it's hard because of the tenor of the public discourse these days for everyone to see that. But I, I hope my talking about it today gets across that it it's working and that people should have some faith in it, should have not some faith, should have faith in it. Yes, totally agree. And I often point out to jurors, uh, to my jury in a trial that what we are doing in this courtroom night right now, other jurors are doing it in all kinds of courtrooms in every state in America. Juries decide questions like this every single day. But I guess to your point, the fact that 12 citizens get together and, and, and make decide a case and it's going on in every court and every every county and every state in America at the same time. That's boring. That doesn't make the news that it's working as planned. Everything's going great in all of the courtrooms. Uh, it, it's to your point, only the outrageous things get get into the, the press. Yeah. And, and you know. It shouldn't be boring because it's it, not boring to me. That's no, I know. I, well, I certainly, I mean, given what I do for a living, I find it very interesting, actually. It, it's, it's, it's really cool. Um, yeah. But I love, I love it. But I, I, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's important and it's real and it's working. And, and, and I, I hope that gets across. If I'm, I'm curious, you know, one of the things that's, I, I guess, you know, Robin specifically asked you about the rule of law. And one of the things that we frequently mention in conjunction with the rule of law is the, the word civility. Uh, and, and, and you were talking about the public discourse, which is manifestly uncivil in many, so many respects uh, today. And uh, I, I think is sometimes sort of a symptom of uh, the, the coming attack on the rule of law when people lose their civility. Uh, are you are you seeing any erosion of civility amongst not just jurors but lawyers uh, that appear uh, in front of you? Unfortunately, a little bit. Um, and you know, I hope that that doesn't become a trend i do think it's not just a byproduct of the of the public discourse i i i think you know covid frayed a lot of nerves um it you know was a time where we didn't you know we didn't get to enjoy 
and experience the social interaction that we're all accustomed to. And, um, you know, it, it really changed a lot of things, um, including, I think, unfortunately, how we interact um, with one another. Um, I, you know, I, I just do my best to, to be kind and, you know, I, I can, when appropriate, be a bit humorous and use, you know, use that sense of humor to lighten things up and kind of telegraph to the courtroom that we're, you know, we're all, we're all people here. Um, I, I, you know, I, 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 I just hope, you know, members of the bar will be good to one another and, and realize, yes, you have a client to zealously advocate for. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, our institutions of government, including our courts, um, are, you know, are people driven institutions and how we relate to one another matters. And that includes, you know, between counsel, even in the thick of a of of, of litigation. You you spoke a little bit about uh, COVID and how it sort of isolates folks. And one of the things that uh, I, I see sometimes in judges, uh, and and uh, as as you know, I represent some judges from time to time, and you know have seen it with some judges who have gotten into trouble is that they sort of isolate themselves. And, you know, just looking at at your resume, the things you're involved in, like, you know, leadership to cab, the high school mock trial, uh, uh, the random acts of kindness uh, bus tour, the Stonewall Bar Association. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how those being involved in those kind of things sort of give you maybe some context as a judge that, that you wouldn't already have. And I mean, I, I think I think we've gotten into this uh, situation where we're uh, we've we've looked for more and more isolated judges. You know, I think we've taken maybe too much. You know, I, you know, when John Jay was chief justice, he actually went and negotiated a treaty. I'm not sure we're doing better than John Jay on the U.S. Supreme Court right now. Uh, but all these extrajudicial things that you do, how does that come into play uh, for you know, giving you context sort of for the the larger world that's being played out in a trial in front of you. It's that we're, you know, we're, we're all, I mean, the code, I mean, I think we have to start here. The code of judicial conduct recognizes that judges are people and that we have interests outside the courtroom. It's just that there are some rules we have to abide by um, in order to preserve Im the impartiality of the courts and uh, the integrity of judicial of our judicial offices. But I mean, you know, I, I so I, I talk a lot, uh, you know, I, I, I like to interact with people and I, I'm an extrovert and goodness, if I had to be isolated in that courtroom all the time, I, I, and that was the only thing that I could do. I mean, I, I Frankly, I, I don't know that I would be surfing on the bench um, <laughs> because it, it it's it, you know, that's very that goes against the grain of my my nature. Um, and so, you know, social interaction is important to me and leader, you know, I just to take a, a 
a couple of examples. One you mentioned, one you didn't mention. Um, you know, I personally, um, so leadership to cab. I'm, I actually just started yesterday as their board chair. Um, so I'm in my just starting my sixth year on their board of directors. It'll be my last, and I'll 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 and it turns out I'm 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 now the board chair. But what what I love about leadership to cab as an organization is that. You know, it's one organization, it's an organization, you know, most judges um, on the DeKalb County bench have been through the program. Um, you know, we we draw people from, you know, every walk of life um, in, in, in DeKalb County. It's an institution that pulls people you know, it's a nonprofit organization, but it's a it's a it's an institution that pulls people out of their corners into Cab County and gives them some perspective and some tools for dealing with the the issues and the and the circumstances of DeKalb County and then sends people back out into the, into the community to operationalize that as leaders in our community. There is no other institution in DeKalb County that does that thing and it's really cool. I mean, I that's why I love doing it. So um I um that's something I've become very involved in just because you know helping people who um you know our leaders are you know hold you know positions or um or roles of responsibility you know understand what it means to be a, a, a you know to do that in our diverse DeKalb County community, um, that's important to me. Um, and that's something that, you know, as I've discussed, translates very well to something that's important to me as a member of the judiciary as well. Um, then the other thing I enjoy doing on the kind of the lighter side is I love to sing. So I, you know, I'm, I'm among all the other things that we've discussed, I'm a baritone in the Atlanta Gay Men's Chorus. Um, you know, you might catch me out there singing a show tune from time to time. Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm actually a decent singer, not the best, but, but decent. And it's something I enjoy doing. I mean, we're, and it's kind of, you know, every once in a while you'll, so, so occasionally on my social media, I'll post, you know, about a, 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 a chorus event that I'm saying at or something. And, um, you know, and people to come up and talk to me about that. And there's nothing inappropriate about talking about singing with, you know, a, a, a lawyer who wants to talk with you about it or someone who, you know, might appear in the courtroom wanting to we're humans. And that's the point. So, um, you know, I, I, I find that those things because, you know, you, you've got your obviously you've got your caseload and you've got the cases you're working on and you can't ever talk about those. And 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 that's the way it should be. <laughs> you know, it's not just the rule. That's the way it should be as an independent judiciary. But there's so much else about who we are as judges um, that I don't mind, um, uh, you know, people knowing and wanting to talk with uh, me about and, and, um, and, and I, I, you know, and frankly, I think that that's also important to um, the public's trust in the judiciary um, to recognize that we have real people on the bench. Um, and, you know, frankly, like I said, I mean, the code of judicial conduct recognizes that very fact.
That's you mentioned- that, that's great. I, I love the the that you love to sing. I, I I love to sing too. Unfortunately, people don't love to hear me sing, so I, <laughs> I don't have the, the the ability to go do that. But you know, that's the kind of thing that uh, I, I think puts a human face on our court system. I remember some great nights. The DeKalb Bar would have karaoke night too, and you you were pretty awesome at those events as well. And always enjoyed those. Um, you mentioned social meet your social media, and it is widely known that you do post about your personal life on social media. You you are as a judge, you have to run for office with the public voting for you. Um, and also, I, I I know that you have your your courtroom has a YouTube channel that you often uh, show your hearings or arraignment. I'm I'm not sure exactly what all you show on YouTube, but um, what do you think about the rise of social media and judges using social media, and and how do you approach it? Well, I mean, I it's I, I think it's important for the way that we relate to the I. I Going back to the point I just made in response to Lester's question, um, I do think, and I know there are other judges who feel this way too. I I I I think I'm I'm um, I, I'd be you know properly ascribing this to Ju- Judge Dillard, for example, um, the Twitter laureate. Yeah, I mean, I I I, I, I we think, talk about him often on this show, so you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I, I think that I I think that. Our, you know, showing us as humans, um, you know, living our lives um, is a um, is important for instilling confidence in in the in the judiciary. I mean, I so I think you start from that point. Um, you know, I am. Um, yeah, I do have an active social media presence. Um, you know, I again, as with anything in being a judge, you you know, you have to m- make sure that you're compliant with the with the code of judicial conduct in terms of what you're posting. There's never anything political on there. Um, I'm I I you know, I I try to be uh, careful about um you know, the, the, who I'm taking pictures with, because you, you, you know, you want to be, make sure that it's not people who regularly appear in your courtroom, for example. Um, you know, you have to be intentional about certain things, but, um, you know, I, I, like I said, I mean, I, I, I like that, you know, people know the work that I'm doing with leadership to cab because it's important to me. And I like that, um, I like that, you know, someone might strike up a conversation with me about singing, for example. I mean, I, I so, you know, and all of that I, I just humanizes us as as judges. So I, I it, it it's I, to my mind, it, it, if not everyone does it, but um, to my mind, it, it's it's appropriate and um, and and helpful for the public to see. Um, our judiciary out there engaged in uh, the community and in our day-to-day lives in terms of what, you know, what our interests are and who we are as people. Judge, tell us 
uh, in your job, what what do you like most about your job as a judge? A combination of things. It's that it's the interaction with people in the courtroom and the opportunity to do things within the law that that are positively impactful on people's lives. I mean, we, you know, the Georgia, for example, has, um, you know, specific statutes that deal with record restriction after, you know, a, a, a misdemeanor conviction um, that allow, for example, in, in, in DUI cases where um, an ignition interlock device has been um, imposed but might present a financial hardship. I mean, you know, defendants who have not, you know, had subsequent offenses for a period, for a long period of time, often file those motions and, and obtain relief. And, you know, it, it it's sometimes it's it's nice to see um you know people who have been able to avail themselves of the laws pertaining to um matters such as those um you know uh, uh, after you know getting themselves on the right path um obtain the relief that the law provides um so that's you know that's one part of it and um and then personally i i also enjoy the good interesting work that comes off our civil docket i mean i like i said i'm a i'm a civil practitioner so um where well, i was a civil practitioner i no longer practice law but um but, but you know throughout my my time in practice i i was i was a civil lawyer in one form or another um and uh, you know our the good complex written work that we get out of civil cases truly is interesting and i very much enjoy doing you know i all my friends who are state court judges one of the things that they say they're happiest about is that state court has no domestic relations jurisdiction so they don't have to do that uh which is uh i think uh for for folks like me who at one time in my career did a little very little bit of that uh, that that seems like one of the real uh, fringe benefits of state court judgeships. Personally, I I mean, and there are people who in who you know came out of the felony world and enjoy doing felony cases. There are people who came out of um, the family law world and enjoy doing family law cases. As for me personally, I would not trade the jurisdiction of the state court for anything. What's the hardest? thing about your job? I would say the hardest thing about the job comes on the criminal docket. And that is that there are, for as much as we have made advances in terms of, for example, accountability programs affecting mental health, um, and substance abuse, um, there are just a lot of problems out there and they can seem overwhelming sometimes. And you can't, it, it is, it is, and, and the, res, for as good as the resource, well, for as 
improved as the resources are at at this moment compared to a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, um, there still are not adequate resources to address all of the issues. And so when you find, you know, oftentimes mental health issues and substance abuse issues find their way into the criminal justice system, and it can be frustrating to not have adequate resources. And that's not taking away from the existing resources that we do have. I mean, um, DeKalb County has an excellent misdemeanor mental health court um, that's run out of our magistrate court, and it's really a great program. But it, it, you know, the problem is so just seems so overwhelming at times. And that is, that is, it's frustrating to, to, to deal with. We have great resources. We just need more. Yeah. What would you want a general layperson who may be listening today to know about state courts in Georgia? That you that you have a hardworking bench, um, you know, with a high volume of cases um, where we're we're here, you know, churning out work each and every day to to keep that docket moving um, efficiently, and that it really is. You know, like I said, I mean, we we ultimately deal with a high volume volume of misdemeanor cases. And on the civil side, you know, our two kind of highest volumes are in personal injury cases involving motor vehicle collisions on the tort side and then debt collection cases on the on the kind of more contract oriented side. Um, you know, that you're you're dealing with a a system that works as intended um with judges who are faithfully applying the law um and that ultimately you know you are going to get a fair efficient hearing um in our state courts um which are specially equipped to deal with those high volumes of cases i mean we're we are we we literally exist to you know, to move those higher volume dockets efficiently, whereas, you know, that might be more difficult in the Superior Court where they have some, you know, bigger cases, particularly on the felony side, um, that, you know, eat up a lot of the bandwidth um, on their dockets. What, uh, what, what, what kind of lawyering do you see? And, uh, do you, do, you, do you have any pet peeves? And and, and uh, we always ask that question about judges. You know, do you have any pet peeves? One of the ways I like to sort of flip that a little bit is what do you see lawyers do that's just really effective uh, in court in front of you? Well, let's see. I mean, did you want me to answer the pet peeve question then? Answer either one you want to. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think, I, I mean, I, you know, we often, judges will often talk about dis discovery disputes um as a as a pet peeve and in the sense that you know 
you are required to have a good faith conference, <laughs> which is a conference, not just a letter, <laughs> um, before bringing those discovery disputes to us. I mean, I, I don't think, I, I, you know, I, it, we just see too many of them, too many discovery disputes where it, it, it just doesn't seem that, that the lawyers really have put their heads together in the first place. Um, to resolve a um, a dispute before bringing it into court, and I, I, you know, I I really would encourage lawyers on both sides of, of civil cases to spend some time, you know, really seeing what you can do to work through that discovery dispute before a motion is filed. Um, it it. it you know that 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 ultimately is is going to be the best way for everyone to deal with their discovery disputes and then on the um on the kind of what 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 has been done effectively um I, you know one i i think that juries appreciate conciseness and sometimes lawyers don't get that um my sense is that that when you are to the point your questions are on point and and you know and and thought through in a way that they you know that you get responsive answers that move thing you know that that move the you know that move the examination along um when your closing arguments are are to the point and really you know hit on the things that the that the jury needs to hear about and and only that um you know juries do in my experience tend to appreciate that um that that does tend to be more effective i think that you know, I think you have to recognize that juries, um, you know, the jurors are ultimately giving up their time to our jury system. I mean, even though it is under a court summons, um, they're giving their time. And, and I think that they appreciate when a lawyer conducts themselves in a way that shows respect for that. Judge, uh our last question to every guest is how do you define justice? So I put that to you. How, what does justice mean to you or how do you see it? How would you define it? Sometimes the outcome of a case or a ruling goes your way. Sometimes it doesn't. But justice ultimately is everyone leaving that courtroom, feeling that they were heard, feeling that the judge understood what they were saying. And that that outcome, whatever it is, is the product of everyone being heard and the judge understanding both everything that was said or presented during the hearing, but also faithfully applying the law. Wonderful. I agree. Boy, we really appreciate you being with us today. This has been one of our great episodes. It's always wonderful to talk to a judge on the state court bench to where most civil cases are going to be heard. 
uh, where I certainly do most of my work. I think Lester probably does most of his in civil in uh, state court. And as I said, most interactions between a regular citizen, if they're going to have an interaction with the court, it's going to be state court. So your job is so crucial uh, to the civil justice system, and we we thank you for your role in it. Again, let me just remind our listeners, we've been talking with the Honorable Mike Jacobs, Judge of the DeKalb County State Court. You can learn more about Judge Jacobs and the DeKalb County State Court at DeKalbStateCourt.net. That's the website for the DeKalb County State Court, or at his website, JudgeJacobs.com. All right, Lester, that was a great uh, talk with Judge Jacobs. Um, very refreshing, and and I really enjoyed it. But now is the time that we like to um, bring to the attention of our listeners a, an interesting law-related news item. And mine is about Taco Tuesday, even though today's Friday. Uh, there was a motion in the United States Patent and Trademark Office to cancel a trademark of the words Taco Tuesday that were owned by Taco John's seasonings and Taco Bell challenged the fact that they had a trademark and arguing that it couldn't be trademarked. Uh, and they had one of the most interesting pleadings I think I've ever read called Petition for Cancellation of the Trademark. And it starts like this. This is the first paragraph in the pleading. People like tacos on Tuesdays. They just do. It's even fun to say Taco Tuesday. Tacos have the unique ability to bring people together and bring joy to their lives on an otherwise mediocre day of the week. But since 1989, entities associated with registrant have owned a federal trademark registration for Taco Tuesday. Not cool. The registration... Uh, potentially subjects Taco Bell and anyone else who wants to share tacos with the world to the possibility of legal action or angry letters if they say Taco Tuesday without express permission, simply for pursuing happiness on a Tuesday. This violates an American ideal, the pursuit of happiness. Taco Tuesday is a common phrase. Nobody should have exclusive rights in the common phrase. Can you imagine if we weren't allowed to say, what's up, or brunch? Chaos. The petition is brought because Taco Bell believes that tacos, just like the joy they bring, belong to everyone on any day. Ergo, Taco Tuesday should belong to everyone. Taco Bell believes Taco Tuesday is critical to everyone's Tuesday. To deprive anyone of saying Taco Tuesday Taco Tuesday, be it Taco Bell or anyone who provides tacos to the world, is like depriving the world of sunshine itself. <laughs> and it was successful. Taco John's relented and gave in the trademark. Uh, so, and then I noticed that Taco Bell to celebrate is having certain days where you get free tacos uh, uh, for the next few Next few days, they've named certain days, September 12, um, September 5, where you will get free tacos from Taco Bell. So 
interesting pleading. I thought it was pretty funny. Yeah, I, no, I think that's great. You know, uh, who I really feel sorry for is Thursday. You know, that, <laughs> you know, Thursday's just neglected by this uh, icon of uh, of civility and joy. The taco, you know, there are no Taco Thursdays, but they they start with a T too. You know, so. I think of Thursday as Thirsty Thursday. Yeah, that's 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 true. I wonder if that one's been trademarked. You know, I don't know. What you got, Lester? I'm I'm on a I'm on a much more uh, serious and in some ways morbid uh, kick with my uh, article today. Uh, But it's an event that just happened today, which is our taping day is August the 11th, and it is from. the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. And just as background, you may recall that there was a horrific shooting at a synagogue in Pittsburgh uh, fairly recently. The, the, you know, contrary to what happens in a lot of these uh, mass shootings, the uh, perpetrator was actually arrested and was tried, did not kill himself or was not killed by uh, police uh, during the process of that. And uh, so during the trial, which recently took place uh, of the shooter, uh, there was another uh, person uh, named Harold, I'm sorry, Hardy Carroll Lloyd in West Virginia. And he was arrested today on federal charges of trying to influence witnesses and testimony in the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting trial through emails and blog posts calling for violence against Jews and threatening to dox jurors, witnesses, and anyone who pushed back against his hateful rhetoric. The charges were filed in the U.S. District Court uh, in Northern West Virginia in a series of emails and blog posts uh, that escalated as the death penalty trial against uh, Pittsburgh synagogue shooter Robert Bowers progressed. Lloyd called for so-called lone wolves to target synagogues and Jews. Quote, walk into a synagogue and gun down 11 Jews and one rabbi, he wrote in late May. That's how you make a difference, people. Lloyd also took aim at jurors in the case, writing in one uh, website post, Y'all who are on the jury, make sure to vote what you know in your heart is morally correct. In another, he expressed a desire to obtain the jurors' names after the proceedings. Hope the jurors get told that and vote the right way, he allegedly wrote. Um, I think this is uh, very significant for uh, a couple of reasons. I mean, one, the jurors are the lifeblood of our jury system and as judge jacobs and all of us talked about is is really one of the last uh bastions of of civility and uh uh good public policy that comes out and so to attack that and to make jurors think because of their decisions they're going to have to uh be in fear for their lives uh is just horrendous uh, and I applaud the uh, U.S. attorney for uh, bringing these charges uh, against this person. I think it also says that our legal system will protect you as jurors. You know, we will take steps against folks like that. I'm, and I'm, I'm really finally, glad they, they arrested the guy. Yeah. And, you know, finally, too, you, you hear 
a lot of folks today uh, talking about in multiple contexts. Oh, it's the First Amendment. I can say whatever I want to say. Uh, and they sort of ignore the fact that, you know, it is a crime to walk into a bank and say, I've got a gun, give me your money uh, or, or to a grocery store or wherever else. And so I, I, I just think the conduct here and I will, of course, uh, as I would with anybody charged with a crime, say they're presumed innocent. But uh, you, you hear what the evidence is going to be here. And I'm glad that the U.S. attorney uh, took this action, that they were able to. Uh, do this uh, to to protect the jurors and more globally to protect our system. And I think we're, we've talked a little bit about social media, but unfortunately, social media allows someone like that guy to spread his awful ideas very easily with the click of a button and really do some some harm and damage. I can't imagine as a juror having to be worried about that. That should never happen to our jurors. Uh, but it's become a reality, I think, with social social media. Absolutely. And, uh, uh, and, and I think the people that are doing this kind of stuff know that and they know they can, uh, they can disrupt, they can uh, uh, sow discord uh, just with, uh, with, with, with one tweet or one, Facebook post or whatever else. Well, that does it on our end. Uh, I want to thank again our sponsor, the Georgia Civil Justice System. And we also want to thank our producer, Philip Hoover. And we thank our listeners for listening. You can learn more about our host, Lester Tate, at akintate.com and more about me, Robin Fraser Clark, at gatriallawyers.net. You may listen to all the episodes of the podcast at court. Lester, hope you have a great weekend. You too. And I guess uh, next time we will uh, see you in court. See you in court. Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, seeyouincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to seeyouincourtpodcast at gmail.com. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who help bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Fraser-Clark and Lester Tate, until our next episode, we'll see you in court.